Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Susan, and uh, Susan Reddy, and it's my pleasure to bring uh, scripture to unfold scripture to you this morning. And um, so, just as we begin, would you bow your head and pray with me? <clears throat> Father, um, the words in these verses are amazing. They are, they limit, they're limited by our, we are limited in our human language to understand or even talk about what's in here. So Lord, I just pray by your Holy Spirit that you would take over this morning. We are your people. We want to hear from you, Lord, not me. <laughs> so would you take over this morning and teach, Lord, because your servants are listening. We're thirsty for you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. So I wonder <clears throat> how many of you, if you are thirsty, simply ignore it. Of course not. We obey our thirst, don't we? As soon as we're thirsty, we will immediately go and find something to satisfy it. And some of us, um, yes, we will choose beautiful, cold, refreshing water that totally satisfies us. But sometimes we will go and we'll choose something that has lots of sugar in it or caffeine or maybe if we're in the mood, a bit of alcohol. And it doesn't really slake our thirst. It actually leaves us actually more thirsty. The truth is we obey our thirst, but we don't always know what we need to truly satisfy it. In scripture this week, <clears throat> we just heard Andrew uh, speak, uh, read it for us, we encounter a woman who is incredibly thirsty. She has a thirst that goes down deep into her soul, and only Jesus can satisfy it. But she doesn't know that yet, but Jesus does. And while she's going about her very rather sad life trying to meet her own needs, Jesus is on his way to meet her and satisfy that deep soul thirst with living water. And um, so let's pick up now and look at these verses together. <clears throat> we read in 4.4 that, um, actually 4.1 to 3, backing up a little bit, Jesus had actually become, was becoming very popular. And the Pharisees were starting to take notice. And it wasn't his time yet to go to the cross and be crucified. And so he realizes he needs to get out of Judea and go back to Galilee. He needs to get out of Dodge. So it says in verse uh, uh, 4, now he had to go through Samaria. This is rather an interesting verse. It was the shortest route from Judea to Galilee, but it was actually the route the Jews always, always avoided because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And um, Samaritans were actually a mixed race. They were part Jew and part Gentile. Um, when the nation had divided and the northern nation of Israel um, was taken into captivity by Assyria in 722 BC, um, uh, the king deported most of the Jews. And so he decided to repopulate the area with basically pa pagans who worshipped false gods. And so they intermarried with the Jews that were left. And they came up with a sort of mixture religion that was a very confused religion. A lot of pagan worship, plus a lot of misinformation about actually how to worship Yahweh, to the point also that they had actually even established their own temple on Mount Gerizim. 
until, in fact, the Jews went and actually pulled it apart in about 120 BC. So that really informs some of what we're going to see as she talks to Jesus, doesn't it? So the Samaritans considered themselves Jews, but Jews hated them, despised them, were super prejudiced against them, wouldn't go anywhere near them because they thought that they were going to be contaminated by them. And so, but we see here that actually Jesus had to go through Samaria, not because it was the shortest route, but because he had a divine appointment with a very needy woman there. He was on his way to see her, and so he travels, it says, as far as a town called Sychar, or Sychar, I don't know how you pronounce it really, and when he gets there, it's about noon, the heat of the day in, in the Mediterranean, incredibly hot, he's tired, so he sits down next to this well called Jacob's Well, just reminds us of our Lord's incredible humanity, doesn't it, what he gave up, becoming a man that he understands what it is for us to struggle as people. Anyhow, he sits down at this well, and while his um, disciples go off to get some food, he waits, deliberately waits by the well, because he's waiting for someone. And so we see in verse 7 that while he's sitting there, she comes along. A Samaritan woman comes to, the, to draw water. So why would anybody go draw water in the heat of the day? In that culture, most women would go with their friends. They'd go early. It would be a social event. They'd certainly go early to avoid the heat. Um, but she doesn't have any friends. And she is a social outcast. So she goes in the heat to avoid everyone. And um, we find out later that she's a so social, social outcast because she's had five husbands and she's currently living with a man. In that society, really frowned upon. She was at risk of being stoned, <laughs> certainly would have been gossiped about, would not want to be around anybody. So she goes to the well on her own, and she spies in the distance a person sitting there. You can imagine how her heart must have sank, right? He's a man. Worst of all, he's a Jew. She would have been able to tell from where, the way he was dressed. She would have expecting, been expecting him to pour contempt on her. And so no doubt she was figuring out how she could slide around him, get her water as quick as she could, and get the heck out of there as fast as possible. But to her surprise, amazement, he actually talks to her. And most shocking of all, he says to her, will you give me a drink? He's asking her for water out of her water jar. Now... At the time, uh, Jewish rabbis never spoke to women in public, not even their wives or their daughters. So a Jewish rabbi, and he would have come across to her as probably that, would never have spoken to a Samaritan woman. And um, for him to drink from her water jar would have resulted in ritual uncleanliness for him. So he would never have asked her for a drink. So, um, so she's amazed, and she says that. How can, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And we're helpfully told here they never associated with each other. <laughs> you know, there's so many barriers between Jesus and this woman, aren't there? There's religious, social, moral barriers. But Jesus does not care about the barriers. In fact, actually, he wants to tear the barriers down because he wants to get to her heart. And so do you notice what he does in here? He makes himself vulnerable to her. He actually asks her for a very real need. He asks her for a drink of water because in allowing her to minister to him, 
the barriers would start to fall. And allowing her to minister to him, he was going to be more able to minister to her. You know, I wonder sometimes when we come to people, we want to share our faith with them, and we think we have everything to give them, and they have nothing to give us. We come across that way sometimes. I wonder if instead we came to people on the same level. We're vulnerable with them. Maybe that would be, maybe we would have more ability to be able to share our faith the way Jesus was able to hit her heart. So clearly this is working in verse 10 because she's talking to him instead of running away, right? And so now he piques her um, interest further. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So, living water. <laughs> Amen. So what does Jesus mean by this? It's very cryptic. Well, in that day, in that culture, even now, I think, um, living water was used to refer to fresh flowing water in a stream, whereas, um, as opposed to the water that most people relied on, which was in cisterns, was often stagnant, had things floating in it, wasn't very pleasant. So this is living water. But God uses this imagery actually in the Old Testament to refer to himself. And we see that in Jeremiah, in a couple of verses I've chosen. It says, um, they have forsaken me. He's talking about his people who he loves. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And then again in chapter 17, they turn away, it says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And we get the same imagery of living water actually in um, Ezekiel when we see this idea of this vision of living water flowing from the throne of God. So Jesus now takes this imagery and he applies it to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's confirmed for us in John 7 where it says, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. By this he meant the Spirit whom believers were later to receive. Of course, she has no idea what he's talking about. And frankly, she's skeptical. Wouldn't you be? I mean, living water. But also, don't forget, this lady has been promised a lot of things by men. A lot of things, and they failed her. And so she's looking at him, wondering where this strange fellow has this living water. And so she says to him, okay, where are you going to get it from, and how are you going to get it? You don't have anything to pick it up with, and it's a very deep well. And by the way, are you greater than our father Jacob? Of course, she has no idea that he is far greater than his ancestor Jacob. She will discover that, however. <laughs> so Jesus explains to her in verse 13 that he's actually talking about spiritual realities. He says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus telling her, that water that you're collecting, it's only going to satisfy you temporarily. The water I have for you, it's going to meet your needs, your deep soul needs. Because this living water, it's God. He's talking about, again, he's talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Now the Holy Spirit is not a force. We don't call him it, we call him him. I love how Tiago started this morning by having us sing about our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery of our God. Of course we can't understand it, we're so limited and he is God. But up until this point in history, God's dealing with his people, um, the Holy Spirit had only come upon certain people for certain tasks that he had for them. It was temporary, he had not indwelled people, but all that was gonna change with Jesus. He was gonna die on the cross for our sins. And he was gonna remove every single barrier. The barrier of sin, the biggest barrier that separates us from the one we were created for. His death on the cross was gonna remove that. So we would receive complete, absolute forgiveness, something we can never ever earn on our own. And he was gonna remove it and be with, instead of eternal separation from him, eternal life, that's what he says, welling up to eternal life. And for the very first time, he was gonna come live inside believers, he said, he, was going to be, he is going to be given to you. He's going to be in you. Springs of living water in you. And this happened for the very first time at Pentecost. Those scared, terrified disciples, they were waiting in an upper room and praying for this gift that Jesus had told them he was going to give them. And they were terrified. And as they prayed... The Holy Spirit came and literally filled them and transformed them. They were so filled with his power and his joy and his courage that they burst out of that room, ran out, talked to everybody who would listen, and Peter preached such a powerful sermon that 3,000 people came to Christ on the spot. That's the difference of the Holy Spirit makes in our lives. And for every single one of us, the nanosecond, ever since that moment, the nanosecond, we believe in Jesus, he comes, God himself comes to live inside of us. The very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead in us. Emmanuel, God with us. And the reality of that is mind-blowing. Through him, we have new, flourishing life. He brings us to life. We were dead spiritually. He brings our hearts to life. And so now we have joy, rivers of joy. He changes us. He changes us and changes our perspective, our hungers, our thirsts, our desires. He makes us more like Jesus. And he gives us power and courage to serve him. It flows out of us. And everywhere we go, he goes with us. And he, his power pours out of us so that when people see us, they hunger for what we have. The difference the Holy Spirit makes in the life of a believer cannot be measured, cannot be measured. I actually um, recently read a really good illustration of this the difference between life with and without in a book Max Lucado wrote called Help Is Here. I highly recommend it. In it, he describes two endurance athletes who both um, completed solo trips in boats. The first one, Katie Spots, rode her boat. 
She rode from West Africa to South America. She rode eight to 10 hours a day, battling, as you can imagine, painful calluses, incredible fatigue, and she actually covered 2,817 miles on her own in a boat. Amazing. I can only imagine. I would never be able to do that. The other one, Laura Decker, she harnessed the power of the wind. She sailed. In 2012, she circumnavigated the entire globe. And it wasn't easy. She was still on her own. She still had to battle waves and difficulties and loneliness and lots of things. But she didn't use her own power, did she? And she got so much further than she could have ever done on her own. In fact, she probably did more than she could have even imagined. And I can only think that it must have been a lot more joyful for the lady sailing than the lady rowing, can't you? <laughs> row, row, row your boat. Oh, this, you know, this wind throwing through my hair as I sail over the ocean. Quite a difference. We can do a lot of things in our own strength. But we can't do the things that we can do when we lean on the power of the Holy Spirit. We can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, and we can have incredible joy doing it. And so Jesus is telling her, I'm the source of this living water. All of us, all we have to do is ask him and he will give it to us. But of course, she still thinks he's talking about regular water as we come back to her in verse 15. And so she says, sir, give it to me so I don't have to keep coming back to the well all the time. She's thinking, oh good, I wouldn't have to keep coming at noon and avoiding everybody. So now Jesus, so gracious, he proceeds to very, very beautifully and lovingly show her that she's been trying to meet her own needs the wrong way and expose to her the sin that has been getting in the way of her receiving this living water. You know, the truth is the Lord must awaken us to our sin before we can turn from it. He must awaken us to the empty cisterns that we're going to before we're ready to receive the living water. And so he exposes the issue. He says, go call your husband and come back. And she, instead of kind of, well, I mean, she could have run away. She could have made excuses. She could have lied. What does she say? I have no husband. Because of the Lord's incredible grace and lovely way with her, she's actually moving towards confession. And so now Jesus shows her, reveals to her that he knows all about her sad life. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the one you have now isn't your husband. Jesus knows that in her desire to be loved, to find meaning, to, to be cherished, she's married five different times, and five times these men have not only met her, not met her needs, they've really hurt her in the process. They've divorced her, and now she's actually living with a man who will not even marry her in that culture. Really terrible. But she is actually living with a man outside of marriage, and God says that is a sin. He's helping her to see her life from God's perspective. And here's the thing we must understand. God points out our sin to us because he loves us. God hates our sin, not because he's a killjoy. 
but because sin hurts us. Sin is going after those empty cisterns, the disgusting empty things that can't fill us. And so he shows that to us as an invitation out of it, and that is what he's doing with this woman who he loves and who he's pursuing, and that is what he does with us. And of course, this is amazing to her. She realizes this is not an ordinary guy, and she says to him, oh, wow, you must be a prophet. And you know, what is she receiving from him is love, right? He's not, he's just being kind. But then she seems to kind of take the whole conversation in left field. She says, you know, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews worshipped on the place you say we have to worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. <laughs> so basically she's saying, who got it right, us or the Jews? Now some people, some commentators say that she's saying this to distract him because she's un uncomfortable. She doesn't like his penetrating gaze. But I personally think, and agree with some other commentators, that really what's happening here is the Lord is awakening her to hunger to worship the Lord. Especially because of how the Lord responds to her, right, in these verses. It's as if she's saying, well, how can a sinful woman like me worship God? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? And so, he says to her, Woman, he says, believe me, a time is coming when you will neither worship the Father here or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. You know, um, he's just telling her the truth, right? <laughs> She's so mixed up. She has so much in religious stuff that's so confusing to her. Some pagan stuff, some weird stuff that she's been taught about how to really worship Yahweh. She's very confused. And so Jesus, without compromise, tells her, actually, the Samaritans got it wrong. The Jews got it right. God revealed himself to the Jews. God gave the scripture to the Jews. And salvation comes from the Jews. The Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. You know, it's not kind for us. It's never kind for us to just pat people on the head and leave them not truly understanding how to find God, is it? So he says in verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What does Jesus mean by this? <laughs> What he's saying is, because of what he is going to do, a time is coming and has now come, and he's gonna remove all the barriers. You don't have to just worship in a temple, in a certain place, using Old Testament ritual. No, all of that is removed. Now, soon, believers will worship anytime, any place, anywhere, because every believer will have the Holy Spirit living in them, and they will be the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have God in us. We can worship him anytime. So people will worship in the Spirit. We have free and open access to the Lord and we can come to his throne of grace and we will find him ready to receive us. And we will 
our spirits we will worship in spirit and truth. Our spirit will resonate with his spirit. We won't just go through the motions. It will be like the divine dance that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been in it. We are invited into that. Do you feel that when you worship him in church, when you sing worship, that you're entering into this place where your heart connects with his heart and you love him and you worship him? That is what Jesus is talking about. Worshiping, really worshiping him. Timing is coming, he says. But the woman is confused. So she says, okay, well, the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything. I mean, obviously, I don't understand why you're talking about Jesus. <laughs> so now Jesus does for her what really he does for very few people. He says to her, I am the Messiah. He tells her he's the one she's been waiting for. And, you know, at that moment, it seems like she believes him. Because we see in verse 27, she cannot contain her joy. She simply drops her pot, forgets why she's been there, and hightails it back to town to tell everybody that she's met the Messiah. <laughs> Do you notice that she's not hiding in shame anymore? She's going to the people that gossip about her, and she says to them, I met a man who's told me everything I ever did. Her shame has become her testimony. How beautiful our Lord is that he can even change our shame. And she's so thrilled, she has to go and tell them. Have you ever noticed something about us as people that joy is better when it's shared? What's the first thing you do if you have a new baby or you get engaged or maybe you get a raise? Well, maybe you don't tell people about your raise, but if you get a new job, <laughs> You go tell people, you show them the pictures, because joy is bigger and better and more beautiful when it's shared. And so she shares her joy, and her joy is contagious, right? She goes and she tells them, and what do they do? They all come out to see him. And it says here that many believed, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Why would they listen to a woman they used to gossip about? Because she was different, because she was joyful, because there was power of the Holy Spirit in her testimony. So that's her story. Now I want to ask us a few questions to help us apply it to our lives. And so my first question for you all is, are you thirsty? We are all thirsty. We are. All of us have a thirst that goes down deep in our soul, just like that woman. In our inner being, we desire to be loved, to be known, to have significance, to matter. We're thirsty. And sadly, like the Samaritan woman, so often we go to empty cisterns to satisfy. We go to the created things like money and fame and beauty, pleasure, Entertainment, endless hours of entertainment. You know, even people. And yes, we may attain these things, and they might for a time satisfy us. And they probably do satisfy part of us. God's gifts are given to us because he's a good father. He doesn't expect our gifts not to satisfy us. It's just that they can't satisfy that deep place, can they? They can't. 
The truth is the only one who truly satisfies that deep yearning need we have is Jesus. It's only in entering into a relationship with God through him that we come to be what we were created to be. We were created for God. We were created only to find satisfaction in him. We were not created to be satisfied in the gifts he gives us. They will always fall short. Only in him are we known. Only in him are we unconditionally, fully, and completely known and loved. Only in him. And only in him do we understand our true significance as the child of the living God. And even when things fall apart, and they do in our lives, and we may not always feel happy when we get sick or we lose people we love or whatever comes in our lives, we can still know the inner joy that will carry us through. It's like a deep well of joy that helps us come over the top of the hard things, doesn't it? So my next question for you then is this. How are you trying to satisfy your thirst? Have you been trying to satisfy it in the gifts God has given you? Have you been trying to satisfy it in empty cisterns and sinful things? Today the Lord invites you to satisfy yourself in him. He loves you. He wants to satisfy you. So much so that he was willing not just to walk along a dusty road, but to walk all the way to the cross and die on it so that you could be his. To remove every barrier so that you could be his. We will never know what it cost our Lord on that cross. We will never fully know, but we can know this thing, this one thing. He did it for you, and when he did it, he removed everything, every single sin, so that you can be his. And just as he had in a divine appointment with that Samaritan woman, he has a divine appointment with you. Today, you're listening to this. Maybe you're listening to a recording of it. This is your divine appointment if you don't know him yet. He's pursuing you like he pursued that woman. And he wants you to know he has a gift for you, a gift of living water, the most beautiful gift you will ever receive. And so today I ask you, ask him for the gift. Ask him. Tell him you want it. Tell him you believe he died on the cross for your sins. You're sorry for going to the empty cisterns. Leave them at his feet like that woman left that jar. Just leave them there. And then tell him you believe, tell him you're sorry, and if you do that, the moment you do, you will receive forgiveness, a new life, and the gift of living water. And you will never be alone again, ever. But for those of us who do know him, we also have a divine appointment with him. Because to be honest, we so easily forget, don't we? Every day, we have a divine appointment with our Lord. Because we fall and begin again to try to fill this place with useless substitutes. 
We try to do life in our own strength. We try to even serve him in our own strength, and we wonder why we are so incredibly tired, why our lives have so little joy, why our walk with him seems to be so lacking when we have this river of living water in us. <laughs> it's because we're trying to row through life instead of sailing, isn't it? So we have a divine appointment every day because we forget and every day we need to be filled again. Filled with his word, filled with his truth, have him remind us, have him fill us, ask him so we can tap into his power and have him flow in every part of us. And then we will be able to walk through life with joy. Not without hardship, but yes, with joy. And so that brings us to our last question, that's this. Does your life make other people thirsty? The joy in the Lord is contagious. Look how her life made other people thirsty for Jesus. I came to know Jesus as my savior here at Granville Chapel because I had a friend who made me thirsty for him, Sandy Porter. Many of you, some of you may not remember her. I worked with her and I, I was thirsty for something. I didn't know what it was. And she was so different than anybody I'd ever met. She had this joy in life, even when things were difficult. And yes, things were hard for her at times. I saw it. I was her friend. Yet she had this joy that bubbled up in her. Something bubbled up in her. I didn't know what it was, but I thought, I want that. So when she invited me to come here, I was wary because I didn't know what I was, you know, I thought maybe we rolled down the aisles at Granville Chapel. I didn't know, you know. <laughs> but I came because of her, because I was thirsty for what she had. And I walked in this door and I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I sat down over there and Tim McIntosh preached that day. And that day, the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the thirst of my soul. I became a believer in Jesus. When we're thirsty, he fills us. And so, I have to ask you, do you have joy in the Lord like my friend Sandy, like, my, like this Samaritan woman? Do you have joy in your relationship with him? Do you remember what it is he's given you? Or have you forgotten? Do you still feel that joy? So easy for us to forget the enormity of what we have, the freedom that we have, the reality of God in us. And so we need to ask him to remind us and restore it to us because make no mistake about it, the Lord wants to use us to reach others for him. And that is what these verses are about as much as anything else. This passage is about our lives making other people thirsty for what we have. So that means we must be different, right? We must love other people unconditionally, not to be prejudiced against them. We have to remember every person, even the ones we think are so far beyond him, so different than us, running after things we don't really agree with or whatever the case may be. They're made in his image. And he loves them, and he might want to use us to reach them. So our lives have to be different. They have to be joyful no matter what. People are watching. And honestly, how we go through difficulties speaks way louder than what we say with our words. We need our lives to be different. 
So it makes people thirsty, and then when they ask us when they're ready, we have to be ready to tell them where we have found living water. So I'm ending with the same three questions. Are you thirsty? What are you trying to satisfy your thirst with? Does your life make other people thirsty? May our lives reflect the glorious truth that Jesus has filled us with living water. And then may we go into our worlds, into our schools, into our homes, into our wherever, and let that living water flow from us so that people want what we have. Will you pray with me? Lord, honestly, these words are beyond me. <laughs> so Holy Spirit, living water in us, plant the truth of your word in our hearts. Fill us with joy. Fill us with the remembrance of the reality that you live in us, Lord. And then, Lord, flow, power flow from us so that others are thirsty. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.